Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. you to turn to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 7, page 49 in the Black Bibles, page 49 in the Church Bibles, and I'm going to read from chapter 7, verse 14, through to chapter 8, verse 19. Will Allen, our assistant minister, will be preaching in just a moment, and this is God's Word to us this evening. Exodus chapter 7, reading from verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff And stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and all your servants. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt that frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people. I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, that you sh- you sh- that be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your house and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all of the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Amen. Well, good evening. If we haven't met, my name is Will. I'm the assistant minister here. If you please take up your Bibles um, and turn back to Exodus chapter 7. Now, when I was a a kid, there was a a TV show called uh, Breaking the Magician's Code. Some of you might have seen it. It was this masked magician who would do uh, some of the most amazing and and kind of world-famous magic tricks and stunts. And it'd be like, no way. How did he do that? And then, actually really controversially, he would then show you how he did it. Um, He kind of lifted the veil and revealed everything behind the scenes. And it kind of really showed both the genius of magicians, uh, but it also kind of made the trick just a little bit more ordinary. All right, all right, that's how they did it. Like no, no magic at all. Now, this idea of kind of revealing what's going on is is often what we need because we can often get so caught up with uh, things in our world. Often they're good things. Perhaps it's the the magic of watching your favorite football team win or the the magic of a great holiday, perhaps the magic of of wanting to win the lottery. And we're filled with such wow that we we don't realize perhaps what's going on uh, behind the scenes and in our hearts. We we don't realize that actually there isn't the magic we thought there was. Now here in Exodus, um, that was true for the Egyptians and especially for Pharaoh. So he lived in this kind of fantasy world where he is a god, uh, a great god among lots of gods, a god who could stand against the Lord. He even mockingly said back in chapter 5, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So the the Egyptians, they're living captivated by the the magic of these gods. 
And they were so captivated, they couldn't see it for what it was, a sham. So here in chapter 7, God begins the first of ten plagues. Ten plagues that actually show the uh, Egyptians many things. Uh, We're going to take three today, three next week, three the week after, and then uh, we'll see how many we take over the the tenth plague. But it's ten plagues to show Egypt many things. Most importantly, he's going to show them who he is that he is the Lord God Almighty, that he is the creator of heaven and earth. But as he does so, revealing who he is cannot but lift the veil on the fantasy of these Egyptian gods. He's going to show their absolute true colors. And this is a good thing. He is showing the Egyptians' truth. He's revealing what is really going on, dissipating the fooling magic. And that's something we see most clearly, actually, in these first three plagues. And as God lifts the veil, he shows us three things. We're going to see the powerless gods, their self-defeating prophets, and their pitiful worshippers. So let's take the the gods, first of all, powerless gods. Now, the story so far up uh, to here in Exodus has been setting up so fiercely this contest between Pharaoh uh, and God. Uh, Just look at what God requests in verse 16. And you shall say to Pharaoh, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. These people, they're, they're not to serve Pharaoh, but God himself. That's who their worship and obedience should be focused on. But Pharaoh is having none of it, is he? He stands as gods before the Lord. He stands in utter defiance. Uh, And Pharaoh stands there with this whole pantheon of other gods. Uh, They're not going anywhere. But the true God then strikes right at the heart of it all, the Nile. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water Perhaps to worship, we're not sure. But to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. Where does it all begin? The Nile. Here was Egypt's beating heart. This river provided the nation's drinking water, a plentiful supply of fish. And more than that, it provided the, the annual floods that gave Egypt its fertile soils and its booming economy. Now, if the Egyptians were willing to have Pharaoh as a god, they also created uh, many more gods, gods bound to kind of different bits of nature. And so given the Nile's importance, not surprisingly, they had numerous gods uh, associated with the river, the most famous perhaps being a god called Happy. Uh, And so for, for Moses to head to the Nile, this was an aggressive move right into enemy territory. But it's the same with the rest of the plagues. We've uh, Just the other two we've read today, if you're going to have a massive pantheon of gods, well, then you'll probably have a gods linked to frogs, won't you? Hecht was a god of fertility with the head of a frog, turning the soil into into gnats. They had a god of the earth as well called Geb. Egypt did not worship the Lord. As a society, they'd made lots of other things, other other made-up idols. They'd put them in charge. They'd taken the gifts from God, a river, fertile soil, the animals that lived in it, and they deified them, they turned them into these gods. Now, in a sense, we don't need to know about all the different uh, gods here. Moses doesn't tell us about them specifically, but we do need to know the Egyptians worship false gods instead of the Lord. What we're seeing is this, that as God's power 
As God's power goes on display, there's a whole load of pretenders to the throne being unmasked. The veil is lifted. Whoever they were, whether Pharaoh or the God of the Nile or a frog god, they were utterly powerless, utterly powerless to stop the Lord. Verse 20, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned to blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Just imagine it, robbed, robbed of the most precious thing in your life, robbed of your lifeline. The one you worshipped, this river running through the scent of your nation, turned to blood, useless, stinking, and happy couldn't do a thing about it. And then when it came to the frogs, rather than taking them away, he just multiplied them. If you want a God of fertility, let me uh, give you so much of this God, it's going to disgust you. And there were frogs everywhere. And it's kind of comical, 8 verse 3, they're in the ovens, they're in the kneading bowls. You can just kind of imagine an Egyptian coming to make some bread and getting the absolute fright of their life as a frog kind of jumps out of the bowl and then another. And there were so many that when they died, 8 verse 14, they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. And hecht is nowhere to be seen. The Egyptian gods are being mocked ridiculed, shown for what they are. They are utterly powerless to stop it. The Egyptians, they looked to these gods for security. They looked to them for production, for wealth, for fertility, but they could do nothing, nothing in the face of this greater power. Creation was never in their hands. They could neither give nor take away. Powerless gods, powerless gods. Now, we don't live in a world where we explicitly deify things, do we? where we turn rivers into gods and give them names. We've kind of lost a sense of God in our world. He's kind of there in our memory. We're moving away from having any kind of transcendent being. So rather than relying on some kind of God, we've, we've had to create other things, haven't we, to give us security, to give us certainty, to give us peace. So perhaps we rely on, on human structures and setups, big scale, you know, I don't know, like the financial markets, big corporations, strong democratic system, perhaps a plentiful supply of oil and gas or, or good crop prices. Or perhaps we rely on things a lot closer to home. We rely on getting sufficient funds in our bank account, making sure we're healthy in every possible way. We even sometimes think the, the only one we can rely on in the end is, is me. At least I can't abandon myself. I'm going to stick with me. Now, although we don't name them as gods, they're very much like the gods of Egypt. We we, we rely on them. We we make sacrifices to them. They're all part of this created world. Egypt's gods of fertility and the Nile of dust. You know, they're all bound by our rules. And ours are the same, whether natural or man-made. They're here. They're in our system. And although they are wonderful things, you know, gifts from God, money, natural resources, health, personal strength, because they're they're created, they always reach an end of themselves. That's really key. We always find a moment when they can't go anymore. They're finite. And so if God decides to lift the veil, well, then they can do nothing to stop it. You know, our financial markets can crash, like in 2008. 
Our God of health can just collapse in front of us like a, a nation with COVID, like a personal cancer diagnosis. Our banks can collapse like Northern Rock. Our, our weather can do crazy things, floods, storms, and drought. Our football team loses. We can lose our jobs. Our, our kids or grandkids get ill. Our marriage struggles. Our mortgage goes up. One nation invades another. And in the end, death stands there mocking us all. These gods we rely on, they just cannot hold the weight. If God decides to lift the veil on our gods, there's nothing we can do about it. And nothing they can either. Now I'm not saying every time when, God, when things go wrong, God is you know, necessarily specifically punishing us for worshipping a certain god like he was here in Egypt. Certainly not. Suffering happens for many, many reasons. But when things do go wrong... God is definitely showing us society's gods for what they are. Powerless. Always at the mercy of other things, whether it's the mercy of sinful human beings, freak events, just the natural decay of life. Finite. Now if you're not a Christian here this evening, does this resonate at all? I know it's a bit bleak, okay? but can you feel how the foundations we build as a society are actually horrifically unsound? They cannot hold the weight of life we're trying to build upon them. Only the Lord of creation can hold our security, can hold our future, jobs, health, family, life and death in his hands. Only the one who stands outside of creation distinct, other, not bound by our laws, not held by humans, the transcendent one, only he is powerful enough. As that Nile turned to blood, what do we see? We see powerless gods. But secondly, here in these three, first three plagues, we also see self-defeating prophets. These first three plagues, we not only get a contest between the Lord and the gods of Egypt, we also see it between their human representatives. You might have noticed that Aaron, he's kind of on one side of the ring. He's the prophet of the Lord. He's speaking for Moses, for the Lord. He, he carries the staff of God, and when he strikes the Nile, it turns to blood. He, he stretches out his hands over the water, and frogs come up from it. He, he struck the dust of the earth, and immediately gnats uh, come on man and beast. You know, Here is a man who knows he works for the true and living God. Here is a man ordained by God to do his bidding, to bring judgment and reprieve. But on the other side of the ring, where we have the prophets of the gods, or the magicians of Egypt, as they're called. We've met them already uh, in Exodus. They managed to turn their staffs into snakes. And here again, they're at work. They appear in 7 verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. And then again, 8 verse 7, but the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Now this might surprise us, it surprised me, seeing the magicians actually replicate God's work. But what this shows us is, yes, there's, there's only one God, but it does show us there is also other spiritual power in our world. At times, we see it more clearly Perhaps like in the New Testament with demonic possession of people. And here these magicians do seem to be able to do something. And that's because the devil does have power to deceive even in miraculous ways. Sometimes I I think those who, who meddle in things like Satanism and witchcraft probably just find a blank wall often. But I wouldn't be surprised if the devil has communicated 
through Ouija boards and tarot cards and other things like that to persuade and mislead. Evil is not something to be taken lightly. But it's also not something to be scared of. It's nothing, nothing compared to the awesome light and power of the Creator God. And its weakness is just seen in these prophets. First, just the scale. Okay, so Aaron, he, he turns their whole river system into blood. The whole nation, even water in people's houses is turned into blood. This is a, a miracle on a scale like no other. Biblical proportions, as people like to say, literally. But then all the magicians can do is just turn a little bit more into blood. They can't reverse it. They can just add a little bit more. It's weak. It's small. And, and then they don't even seem to notice the irony of what they do. Because all they do is make the situation worse. When all their water supplies turn to blood, the small amounts they can find of normal water, what do they do? Well, they turn that into blood too. When the whole nation has ended up covered in frogs, so many that they're everywhere, what do they do? They just add to the problem. Create more frogs. They are completely self-defeating. They just work against themselves. They increase the judgment. They, they cut their noses off to spite their own face. And they just can't see it. Same with Pharaoh. He sees this small, self-defeating effort and just think, well, that proves it. The Lord is no match for the, of the gods. Verse 23, Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not take even this to heart. You know, no match. They're, they're completely self-defeating prophets. I think it just emphasizes the deceitfulness of sin and power. You know, in order to solidify the myth of the gods, in order to keep Pharaoh in place and the, the magicians as his go-to, they just make things worse and no one seems to care. As worshippers of false gods, all they can do is look to the false for the solution. In a sense, all they can do to fix their, their broken water system is try and use the broken pipes they made it with it in the first place. And our world is no different today. Now in the West we don't often or at least publicly turn to demonic forces. But when things go wrong, rather than turn to the God of the universe, rather than turn to the God who made us, who loves us, all we can do as a society, especially in the voices of our, our, cult, our society's kind of magicians and prophets, the, the media, the, uh, the cultural elite, the influencers and educators, all we can do is turn more and more to the gods who created the problem in the first place. Now, I wonder if this is most clearly seen in our pursuit of freedom, particularly sexual and identity freedom. You know, we are a society that has pushed and pushed sexual freedom since the 1960s. And technology has just taken it to a new level with pornography and sexting. And so just last, uh, I think it was last week, it was in the BBC News that half of all reported sexual abuse was perpetrated by under-18s. Half. That's the world we're in. It's absolutely tragic. We're reaping what we've sown. But what have we got to deal with it? You know, well, let's, let's just educate them some more about sexuality and sexual health. Let's tell them more about it. Let's expose them even younger and younger to sexual education. Our solutions, we just can't help but add to the problem. We add more and more frogs to that stinking, dying pile. Well, take the extraordinary growth of young people struggling with their gender identity. 
You know, in the wake of gender ideology, it's so sad how many people have suffered with gender dysphoria and gone to identity clinics like Tavistock. But once again, rather than just seeing this as the fruit of a damaging ideology, proof that pulling away any uncertainty from young people about who they are just makes it worse, what does our media do? Well, it points to the success of education, says we need more diversity training, more helping children to know the lies. And surprise, surprise, more children end up struggling. We just make it worse. We turn what water is left into blood. We find a problem and our self-defeating prophets step in and it gets worse. It's only the one who is truth who can help us. Only the one who can see us from outside, who can see the lies and deceptions we're believing. It's only the Lord who can bring healing and respite. That's why we're people of Jesus Christ and his word. Because it's only as God steps into the world, only as he brings a message of salvation from outside of us, it's only then do we have any hope. And that's why the message of Jesus can feel so different to what the world teaches at times. Because it's not stained by sin. It's not self-defeating. It's a gospel that comes from outside of us to show us what life is really like. That's why it's called the gospel. It's good news, good news indeed. These plagues, they've shown us powerless gods, self-defeating prophets, and lastly, pitiful worshippers. At the end of each of these three plagues, we have quite tragic scenes. 7 verse 24, and all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. In the Egyptian heat, you can just imagine uh, dehydrated men and women longing for a drop of water to satisfy their thirst on their hands and knees surrounded by this rotting fish, desperately digging to find a, a, a spring of clean water, perhaps filtered by the soil, separate from that cursed Nile. Once God has killed off the frogs, 8 verse 14 again, they gathered them in heaps and the land stank. Oh, the smell of death that filled the land, rotting flesh, piles of frogs everywhere. It'd be comic if it wasn't so horrific. And then 8 verse 17, there were gnats on man and beast. When God lifts the veil on our gods, as his judgment comes on our wickedness, we actually see a pitiful picture the ordinary people of our societies, they're kind of just left to pick up the pieces. They're the ones who experience the fallout so acutely. They have no buffers. They have no ivory towers, no capital in reserve. Suffering hits them hardest. Pharaoh goes back to his palace as people scrounge for water. You know, just looking at the arrogance of war as we, we're seeing at the moment, you know, Putin, power-hungry, insecure, Safe in the secure Kremlin. Hamas, bitter Muslim extremists, safe in their tunnels. But as their efforts fail, well, their people, utter catastrophe. Or when the financial crisis hit, the CEO of Lehman Brothers took home a $34 million bonus while he left millions unemployed in his wake. As the veils get ripped away, as the great edifices of, of, that we build come tumbling down, so those at the bottom get crushed. They are pitiful worshippers. And we might think, well, God's judgment just seems to miss the mark, doesn't it? Surely you want to hit the top level hardest, but this is more of a reflection on our fake gods than on the Lord. 
It's what happens when the veil is lifted and we see them for what they are. They cannot hold the weight of the people they promise so much for. They've been set up by the powerful to protect the powerful. Pharaoh's system of him being God, of course it creates some kind of safety net. He set it up. Now the fault, sin, of course lies in all of us. But some on that day of judgment, unless they're in Christ, will face a far more severe punishment. The powerful have ravaged the weak. The wolves have eaten off the sheep. And we live in a world of pitiful worshippers. And I think, I think this helps us as we see the world in its mess. Because hopefully it stokes our compassion and sympathy for a world that's hurting. And of course God doesn't excuse sin. We are all guilty before him. And the people around us have, have sinned and worshipped idols and false gods. We long for them to find forgiveness and new life. But as they struggle in the world around them, may we not be so proud to think, well, they did it, so they deserve it, and so we leave them be. I remember um, for my degree a long time ago studying uh, Christian responses in the 1990s to the HIV epidemic. And some of those responses were awful. It was pretty much, it's your fault, so tough. And we turned our backs on the hurting But sin and disaster, it's more complex than that. There are layers of power and deceit going on. And and yes, God judges sin, but he, he also came not to condemn but to save. His love comes to seek and save the lost. Christ, he had very stern words for those in power like the Pharisees who put burdens on worshippers they could not carry like, like Moses does for Pharaoh here. But he also called the weak, the poor, the tax collectors and prostitutes, the mourners and persecuted to himself. And he didn't set up a system to crush the weak, to leave them by the wayside, but to protect and to shelter. He gave his word and his spirit. He gave shepherds and church families, all for the good of these pitiful worshippers when they leave their powerless God. So the answer we need to give them is Jesus. That's what gets to the heart of the problem he does. So, so don't we just long for people to know the true God's? Don't we long for people to be freed from their false powerless gods, from the lies of their prophets and find eternal life, fulfilling worship, joy and hope in the Lord himself, knowing God as their father through Jesus the son by the power of the spirit. As we see pitiful worshippers of false gods, may we be moved to pity. May we be moved to share Christ with them, the true savior. So as God lifts the veil on our world, we see these three things, powerless gods, self-defeating prophets, and pitiful worshippers. And, and this God, he's, he's lifting the veil in this age as a wonderful act of mercy, actually. He's lifting the veil so that we see the wickedness of the lies we've been told. And as we do, that we may know there is a real God a true God, the Lord, Father, Son, and Spirit, whom uh, can come to, whom, whom is, is the one of power and strength, of goodness and truth, and he's the one we can come to actually in closeness. Not like Pharaoh, who just kept any of this at a complete arm's length, even telling Moses to pray for him and hardening his heart. Not like the magicians, they realized there was a more powerful God out there. They even said this is the finger of God and yet there's not a hint of repentance. Again, they acknowledge him but never actually come to him. 
God doesn't want us at a distance. He judges the gods of our world so that we might come to him in deep communion, to come to him as our father through his son, to know him in love and friendship. That's the God we delight to serve, to his glory. Amen.